Bibles up. We will be in 1 Samuel, continuing on. We're getting close to the end of the, of the first book of Samuel. Chapter 27 tonight. Dealing with fear and mistrust. I know that's not an issue for any of you, but for those who might listen online, you know, Dealing with fear and mistrust. And mistrust. We are going to cover a story tonight that begins in chapter 27 and ends in chapter 29. I told you we're not doing any more like marathon three chapter nights, but we are gonna do two. But they're short chapters, and the reason I'm doing it this way, chapter 27 and chapter 29, is the story begins in the one and ends in the other. It's an interesting literary device that the Holy Spirit uses, and I think it's purposeful and I may point out more of this on Sunday as to why it's laid out the way it is, but chapter 28 is a strange little standalone ghost story. So we'll look at that on Sunday morning, but it is a story that happens apart from what's taking place in chapter 27 and 29. So we're gonna look at those two tonight, and we're gonna outline the story. I'll go ahead and give you the outline ahead of time, four parts to what we're gonna see as we walk through 1 Samuel 27 and 29. Number one, David's fear. David's fear. And then we will see David's facade. David's facade. Number three, we're gonna see David's fix. And finally, David's freedom. So you just need to remember that. Fear, facade, fix, and freedom, all related to David. You know, I think a large part of what makes David's life so compelling is that while very few of us have killed giants, show of hands, okay, written psalms, fled a mad king, few of us have lived in caves, one or two maybe, uh, few if any of us have ever ruled an entire nation, but most of us can at some level, we can relate to this flawed man. He's intriguing because he's a man after God's own heart, and yet we look at his life and say, he's no better than I. In fact, in many ways, he's far worse. But he's a man after God's own heart. But he's a man of the flesh and a man who spins around in his soul, body, soul, and spirit. This man we can relate to. David reminds us of this important truth that by grace you have been saved through faith and that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, verses eight and nine. One of the key verses, if you're not a Bible verse memorizer, I wanna encourage you anyway to memorize that one. It'll get you through a lot of messes. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And the through faith, that's the part, is, that's what makes a person after his own heart. As we've been talking about, it's not being perfect, it's not always getting it together, it's not always doing the right thing, though that may be our desire, our want, but the reality is, it's through faith that we have been saved by grace. So it's entrusting him, amen? amen. All right, you're with me. So far. so far, so good, all right. In the meantime, we identify, I think, very well with the many facets of David's very human struggles. Because like David, even the most spiritual person can lose heart. Again, I don't need a show of hands on that one. With the singular exception, historically, of Jesus himself, the best human beings are still human beings at best. The best human beings are still human beings at best. So even at the top of our game, we're still human. Now, that's not a cop-out to mediocrity. It's just a recognition. It's actually a claim to grace by faith in Jesus, which is who makes us what we are. Let's get started. Part one, we start with David's fear. David's fear. Now, you may recall in the last chapter, David spared Saul again for the seventh time, at least according to the scriptures, he forgave Saul. And, and, and this had been a pattern of, on the run. And finally, if you look at chapter 26 and pick it up in verse 21, Saul says, I have sinned, return my son David, for I will not harm you again because my life was precious in your sight this day. So we read that, we hear the story, we see forgiveness given, repentance made, forgiveness accepted, return David, and we figure, okay, good, it's over, right? 
Do you think David thinks so? Verse one of chapter 27, then David said to himself, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over he and the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maoch, the king of Gath. So after Saul's ostensible repentance and apparent promise to leave David alone and allow his return into Israelite society, David's not buying it. Ever been in that place? You've offered forgiveness, they've repented, but something inside of you tells you, I don't know that we're not gonna be right back at this place again. I have a feeling I can't really trust this. David is still feeling this long, almost a decade battle of being a partridge on the mountain. Remember Sunday we talked about that, that sense of running in exhaustion until you feel like you're just about to fall over. David's still there. He's not only weary, but he is leery, and he is still fearing Saul's next move. What's he gonna do? I can't trust. He says everything's fine. He says return. I can't trust that he's not gonna be chucking a spear at me again. And I'm reminded of Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. And by the way, note how verse one begins, David said to himself. Literally, the word is leb in the Hebrew, himself. It's David spoke to his heart. David spoke to his own heart. A few things about the fear of man and what it can cause, at least from what we see with David right here. Number one, the fear of man can turn you inward. Fear of man can turn you inward. And by the way, that's the way of the world. See, what, what the world says, and see if this doesn't work, or, or at least doesn't uh, sound familiar, the world says, follow your heart. Follow your heart. Trust your feelings. Believe in yourself. Translation, live in fear. Where do you get that? Well, because you can't trust anybody else. Because you know if you do, they're gonna let you down. They're gonna hurt you. They're not gonna go the way that you know is right. Therefore, what's the answer? The only answer in a world of unbelief is trust your own heart because you're the only one you can trust. And that is living in fear. It is turned inward. Fear drives us inward because you can't trust turning outward. How about turning upward? See, here's the answer. Proverbs 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. But this is the running issue in David's life. And again, this is what draws us to him and makes us relate so well with him is he's in this ping pong match between trusting his own heart and trusting the Lord. And we see this with David when he calls for the ephod, when he calls for prayer, when he calls on the name of the Lord and gets answer, he goes forward with confidence. But as this chapter begins, he's speaking to his own heart. So David is turning inward and the fear of man is what drives that. And yet the Bible says, Colossians 3 verse one, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Seek that which is above. Turn upward, not inward, not outward, but upward. Seek the things above, Paul writes, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And listen, the, the things that are on the earth, hey, to a human being, the central thing on the earth is you. I am the center of my universe. I'm the one right here in the middle. I'm not saying I'm the most important in the room, but to me, my entire worldview and perspective comes right back to right here. And I know that's not your perspective. Each one of us, we can center in. And again, that turning inward is a dangerous place to be. But in Christ, things are looking up. We're not looking outward to the place where fear is driven. We're looking upward to the one in whom we have faith. And by the way, didn't David do this before? 
Didn't he go into Philistine country before on, on the run from Saul? So this is not a new behavior. This is the same thing. Last time he was there, you may recall, he ended up playing a slobbering lunatic to get away. What are you doing, David? Second thing about the fear of man is it can drive you in reverse. Not only does it drive you inward, it drives you in reverse. When the fear of man supersedes the fear of the Lord, we will tend to repeat previous folly. It's that definition of insanity. It didn't work before, but maybe it'll work again. I know it failed the last time, but if I try again, this time I can make it work. So David again goes back to Philistine country looking for safety, looking for security, but it is the land of the enemy. And we've talked a little bit about this, but church people do this. Christians do this. We go looking for security in the land of the enemy. We get hurt in church, and so we think, well, maybe a compromise with unbelief will be a little easier than this. At least I know where they're coming from. You know, maybe it will be easier at first. Taking time off, you know, getting away from Christians and just hanging out in the real world. Maybe at first it seems easier just to compromise and tolerate and put up with and not worry about it. But it's still enemy territory. It is still enemy territory. I, I hate to be the one to break it to you, followers of Jesus, but the world is against you. I don't say that to make anybody paranoid, but the world is against you. If you set your heart on Jesus, if you are a follower of his, you automatically stand opposed to the ways of the world, and the world stands opposed to you. But David says, look at the way he even says it in verse one, there is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. This is the best thing I can do. Really, David? This is the best move? What does the Bible teach? Hosea chapter six, verse three. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Don't go back to the place you've tried before. Go on in the Lord. Philippians 3.13, I hope you're familiar with this. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm going forward, not backward. Fear of man will drive me in reverse. But the fear of the Lord will lead me forward. Hebrews 10.39, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. I love the way that's written. Faith to the preserving of the soul. He's gonna keep my head. He's gonna preserve my mind. He's gonna keep my soul straight as I pursue him in the spirit. Well, Rick, don't we sometimes look back in faith? I mean, we're doing that tonight. We're going back 3,000 years. We're looking back in faith because it encourages us to go forward in faith. And that's the difference. When we look back in the fear of the Lord, we don't return to bad decisions. We don't return to the land of the enemy, but we look back and we learn from it and we are encouraged by it, especially when we look back to the cross, right? As often as we remember him, we, we proclaim his death until he comes. That's looking back to be encouraged to look forward. Well, verse three, David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each one with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. Hang on a second. Would you want to hear that over and over? Oh, hey, I see you brought Nabal's widow. This is my wife. No, no, it's Nabal's widow. I know she's your wife, but she's, she's, she was his, right, before. Nabal's widow, literally in the text, it is Nabal's wife. David lived with Ahinoam and Abigail, Abigail, Nabal's wife. Why does it have to go there? Do you realize that it's not the only time a wife of David is going to be forever linked to a former husband? 2 Samuel 12, verse 10 says, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite 
to be your wife. You all know her name, Bathsheba. Matthew chapter one, verse six. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. It's like it's their dog in him, that the reality is she is not only your wife, she was his wife. Now, I just point this out, not to shame or, or embarrass anybody, but the issue goes way beyond messy marriages. And we're all capable of that. David is gonna have several very messy marriages. In fact, his entire family situation is gonna be about as dysfunctional as it gets. We will see coming into the next book. But I wanna remind you of something, and it's the reason I point this out. The union of a man and a woman that is so degraded and, and so depreciated in our society today was established at creation, right? I think we're all in agreement with that biblically. Why? Because, and here's the point, it remains as the picture of Christ in his church. And I know we've talked about this. And again, I'm not trying to, to dredge up anything. God is able to work amazing and remarkable grace in all of our lives and in all of our situations. But Paul wrote the following, and this is, this is what we've got to understand. Ephesians 5.31, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. We talk all the time about a one flesh union in a marriage. Jesus is looking for a one flesh union with you, with me, with his church. Christ and the church is the point. Revelation 19, verse seven, let's rejoice and be glad, give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, and if you feel like your fine linen is all muddy and scraped and torn and messed up, guess what? The fine linen is not given, it's not worked out or sewed by you, it's given to you. The grace of God even gives us our righteousness, gives us the ability to do anything that we do righteously, and my point is simply this, that our faithfulness is not the standard. His faithfulness is the standard. And while the fear of man may set us inward, it may drive us in reverse. Third thing to note about the fear of man, it puts a question mark on God's faithfulness. Puts a question mark on God's faithfulness. Did, did God really say? You know, we'll, we'll, Will God really do? And the whole reason I kind of took that little rabbit trail is that is at the heart of David's struggle tonight, questioning God's faithfulness. Oh, he may not say it out loud. In fact, you may not. When you have those moments of doubts, when, when things are not going well, when you're trying to figure out how you got to where you are at this point or season in life, you may not sit there and go, boy, right now I'm questioning the faithfulness of the Lord. But you will find yourself going, God, how could you let this happen? Now, Jesus, I thought that you were for me. Did I, did I misunderstand you, Lord? And you're right where David is tonight in this chapter. It's not the words or actions of God. It's one man's struggle of faith in a world that breeds fear and mistrust. And David still needs to learn Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. God is faithful. God says it, and he does it. Now, let's go further, and I'll explain this better. David and his two wives and, and his men and all their families now are gonna settle in Philistine country for 16 months. They're gonna be in this one location, verse four. Now, it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Wait a minute. Do you realize what that just told us? That raises a question of motives. It was told Saul, David is no longer in Israel. He's in Philistine country. And because of that, Saul gives up the hunt. Exactly what David thought. Saul repented, I thought. 
Saul said, return, David, I thought. Well, really, it sounds like he is now backing off because he's afraid to hunt for David in Philistine land. So Saul's motives become very clear here that in the moment there by the Mount of Darkness in the wilderness of desolation, as we talked about on Sunday, Saul says, oh, I am, I sinned, my bad, return David, I'm not gonna come after you anymore. David is not sure about this, so he heads to Philistine country and we find out it is exactly what David thought. The soul man would say, well then, he was right to run to Philistine country. I'm not saying that. But we do find out something about Saul's motives. You need to hear this. Saul's motives do not invalidate David's forgiveness. You see, whether Saul truly repented or not, God knows what's taking place. And all David knows at this point is he truly did forgive Saul, and it's all he needs to know. It's all he needs to know. As I said on Sunday, when Saul dies, and he's going to die within 16 months of chapter 26, when Saul dies, David will know the last thing that he said to Saul was a word of forgiveness. So for David's heart, he is free of that whole situation. Even though Saul's motives now are clear, he would still be hunting David if he was in the land. Well, verse five tells us, then David said to Achish, now, if I have found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? I, you know, I don't deserve to be there. Give me something out on the outskirts. What is David doing? I don't want the eyes of the king of the Philistines on me. I want to be out a little further away. So he asks for this freedom. So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. So this, this town that's actually in Philistine territory now belongs to Israel by way of David or will belong to Israel by way of David because he gives it to David. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So as I said, 16 months. You might wanna note this Ziklag is probably what they call today Tel Esherah. And this Tel is 23 miles south of Gath so it's down in the, in the Negev, far south of, of Judah. And Ziklag means, and it's a perfect name for a city for David, especially in this season, winding. Winding, it's the winding city. This is the place of winding. David's young adult life, he spends winding through the caves and the deserts of the land. He spends zigzagging in the fear of Saul. And now he's in a twisted relationship with the enemy. Ziklag is perfect. David's fear now leads to David's, part two, facade. David's facade. Verse eight. Now, David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times as you come to shore, even as far as the land of Egypt. What's going on here? David and his men now have Ziklag. They're now on the outskirts of Philistine territory in the south, and he becomes a desert raider. In this 16-month period of time, Davis puts it this way, he's a desert raider raiding desert raiders. So he's out there, and he's taken out these, these pockets, these, these Canaanite leftovers. Notice that in verse eight. They're Geshurites, Gerzites, and Amalekites. These are Canaanites. Canaanites properly. These are the ones, the enemies of God, the pagans in the land. These are leftovers. These are the dregs and the debris of the former peoples, and they're still living in the Negev. So what David and his men are doing is they are going out and they are raiding these different groups. It's like they're finishing up what the people did not finish under Joshua. At least that may be how David is rationalizing it. But they're out going on raids. Verse nine, tells us David attacked the land and did not leave a man or woman alive. And he took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing. And then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish said, where have you made a raid today? And David said, against the Negev of Judah. Against the Negev of the Yeramielites, those are Israelites, and against the Negev of 
the Kenites. This is David's facade. He is going out on desert raids, but he's targeting these pagan peoples. He's targeting anti-Israelite enclaves in the desert. And all of these that he says, when he comes to Achish, these are all either Israelites or Israelite-aligned people, but David is telling Achish, yeah, I'm going after these people of Judah. I'm going after these, these Israelites or the Kenites. Kenites were good friends, close friends with Israel. Yeah, I'm going after them. And so Achish is becoming appeased. He's becoming convinced that David really is becoming a Philistine. He's even out fighting against his own people. But it's David's facade. He is playing Achish. He's deceiving him. He's fighting for Israel against Canaanites under the guise of fighting against Israel for the Philistines. Why would God approve this mean slaughter of men and women? Well, nobody said he did. This is David's doing. Now, he may think he's doing it for the Lord. I don't know. The Bible doesn't even tell us that. But it also doesn't tell us anything about God's uh, feelings on the matter. Verse 11. David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, here's his reasoning, otherwise they will tell about us. Saying, so has David done, and so has David been, so has been his practice all the time he's lived in the country of the Philistines. They're gonna give me away, so I gotta silence them. Verse 12, so Achish believed David, saying, he has surely made himself odious among his people Israel, therefore he will become my servant forever. And the truth is, he's becoming even more of a hero to Israel. He's like the Robin Hood of the day. He's out wiping out pockets of Israelite enemies while living in Philistine territory, and as word spreads throughout the land, and I guarantee you word spread throughout the land, the Israelites are going, look at what David's doing. And the Philistines are going, look at what David's doing. And the Philistines are completely duped, or at least Achish is at this point. Now, it seems like this duplicity of David's involving killing, truly a killing silence, seems like it's worked. Like you could read this and some might read this and go, well, that's why I don't like the God of the Old Testament. That's why I don't like the Bible because it approves of these things. I've told you before, just because the Bible reports it doesn't mean the Bible supports it. You need to be clear on that. And so I'm gonna say something that I said a few studies back. You can disagree. I don't know why you would, but, but you can disagree with me on this. Lying is lying no matter the reason. Deceit is deceit, no matter how we may try to justify it, that the ends don't justify the means. What the Bible says in Psalm 86, 11 is, teach me your way, O Lord, I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Another way to say that would be, Lord, help me to fear you and not to fear man. Why do we lie? Why do we deceive? Why are we duplicitous? Because we're afraid of the, of the outcome if we're not. We're afraid of my, what might really happen. If we would learn to have the kind of confidence, and we see this scattered throughout history, we see it scattered among those in the Bible, those who had the confidence to fear God rather than fear man, when they're thrown into the lion's den, the lion's mouths are shut. When they're tossed into the furnace, they walk about with a fourth man, unburned, unsinged. Or they die a martyr's death. Jesus said in Matthew 10, don't be afraid of those who can, you know, at best just kill the body. Don't worry about that. Again, fear of the Lord versus fear of man. But David is playing a very, very dangerous game here. He's out on these raids. He's killing these Canaanite peoples. He's taking down enemies of Israel, but he's lying to Achish and saying, no, no, these are actually Israelites that we're going after. You know what Jesus said about lying? I think this caps it better than anything else. He says, whenever the devil speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies, which means when I lie, I have just given birth to something that comes from the devil. Now, lying is never okay. 
It's never okay. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Or Revelation 21.8, if you just need clarification for the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Okay, well, I've told my fair share of lies. Thank God that by grace I am saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God so that no man will boast. But I want you to note here that in, verse, in chapter 27, in this section of the story, there is not a single word about God's point of view regarding what David's doing. In fact, God is so silent in chapter 27, he's not mentioned, he's not named. David call, Davis calls this chapter a godless text. It is completely godless because there's no mention of God anywhere. You could stick this in a secular book and, and, and you wouldn't know the difference. Why? Verse one, David said to his heart. David leaned on his own understanding. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse five, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man whose trust is in mankind and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Jeremiah 17, verse nine, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Remember in our previous study, we talked about how, how David's companions gave him bad counsel. Guess what? You can give yourself bad counsel. Your own heart can sometimes produce the worst possible counsel. So again, it's not turning inward because turning outward is going to be problematic. So I gotta trust my own heart. My own heart is gonna deceive me. I need to turn upward. I need to lean not on my own understanding, but trust in the Lord. And because David is playing this tricky, deceitful game, he is about to get in a real bind. Now, we gotta give David the benefit of the doubt um, because David lives in real time, you know, just like you and me. It's very easy for us to sit here and look back 3,000 years and go, well, he did this wrong and this wrong and this wrong, and we can see it all laid out in scripture, but he was living it. So he is living in the moment, and it really seems from David's perspective, maybe you can relate to this, that all he had to go on was eight to 10 years experience of being hunted. Survival of the fittest, baby. He's gotta somehow figure out how to survive in this very harsh world. And so this partridge in the mountains doesn't seem any see any alternatives to what he's doing. He said it, again, verse one. There's nothing better for me than to escape to the land of the enemy. And listen, here's the whole point, really of the whole night. There's nothing better for me. How about trusting the promises of God. How about just trusting the promises of God? Do we put more faith in our personal experience or do we put faith in the promises of God? Second Corinthians chapter one, verse 20 says, as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him, is our amen to the glory of God through us. When God makes a promise, it is a yes. It is assured. It is an absolute. And our biggest struggles in life, our most Davidic struggles, if you will, are when we're turning inward, when we're looking to our own hearts, when we're trusting ourselves because personal experience says I can't trust anything else rather than trusting in the promises of God. He said it. He will do it. Hadn't David heard the promise? I mean, specifically from God to David through Samuel. He heard it through Jonathan. He heard it through Saul at one point. He then heard it through Abigail. He heard it through Saul again. Hadn't David heard the promise, you will reign in Israel. You will succeed. This will Go well. The Lord has you. You are anointed 
of God. Hadn't he heard the promise? Yes, he'd heard the promise. Yes, he knew what was supposed to be before him. The issue is, do I accept the promise or do I trust my own heart and lean on my own understanding? A little exercise, maybe a little homework for you this week. Go through and just write down all the promises of God that he's made to you just in the Bible alone, that which is coming. The promises that are out before us. You want to, you want to enjoy an evening this week? Write out the promises of God. Check out what he has said. What he has guaranteed is right before us, is about to happen. The promises of God are everything. And by the way, the promise of God didn't start with David. The promises that he could have, I will even say should have trusted in at this time, rather than running to the Philistines, rather than on, you know, on the run from Saul still, rather than living in fear and trusting his own heart, the promises of God were there for David. And the promises go way back. Turning your Bibles over to Romans chapter four just for a moment. Romans chapter four, I'm gonna show you something there. Romans four. Let's hear those crunchy pages turn. Romans chapter four, I'm gonna pick it up in verse 16, although we could do the entire chapter. But Paul says, for this reason, it is by faith. Romans 4, 16. It is by faith, that is trust, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Ooh, wait a minute, faith in God's grace? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that's where we get saved, right? It is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. I can't tell you how thrilled I was when I realized that I had a heritage. I was talking to someone about this on Sunday. I have a heritage, and I'm not talking about my Scottish heritage which I don't know much about. I, I know probably the, the bulk of my European background is, is coming out of Scotland, although there's a whole bunch of other stuff in there too. But I never really thought about heritage. I was born in California. I grew up in the melting pot, you know? America, we're just kind of all part of whatever we were before, and, and we're Americans now. For how long? 200 years. That's not very long in, in the history of the world, right? And I used to think, well, I don't really have a heritage. I used to look at, at Jewish friends and go, wow, that's a heritage. And then I read Romans 4 and realized, wait, that's my heritage. I'm a child of Abraham by faith. I'm not a child of the law you know, that came through Moses. No, I, I draw back further than that. Back to Abraham, who was called by God out of a pagan world. Hey, that's me. My pagan background. He had a pagan background. He became the first called out by faith in the living God to the promise. And the promise, Paul says, is guaranteed to all the descendants. He says in verse 17, as it is written, a father of many nations I have made you. Remember Genesis chapter 12? Abraham, I'm gonna make you a father of many nations. And it goes on, it says, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. You know what didn't exist for David as he fled into Philistine territory? The kingdom. As far as David could tell at this point in his young life, there was no hope of the kingdom. Saul is king and I'm dirt, I'm a flea, I'm a partridge in the mountains, that's the best I've got, I better go take care of myself. But Paul says God is the kind of God who calls into being that which does not exist. What doesn't exist in your life? What's absent right now in the struggle of this season? You know, we talk about the coming kingdom. Sometimes, to me, it seems like it's right there. And then there are days where it seems so far away, I can't even tell you. But God calls into existence that which does not even currently exist. It's how the world came to be. In hope against hope, he, that is Abraham, believed. Why was it hope against hope? Because he was old. 
Abraham's pushing 100 years old. This is not possible. Have you seen Sarah, Lord? I mean, we're an old couple. We're way past these days, which is the whole reason why Abram went into Hagar and that whole messy story. And yet God came back and said, nope, not, not this way. I told you it's gonna be through you and Sarah. And Abraham believed him. Hoping against hope is ridiculous, but you said it, Lord, so I will believe it. So that he might become a father of many nations according to, to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Paul says, verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, <laughs> since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he looked at that and he went, okay, here's the reality. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, listen to that again, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. He grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And, verse 21, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. That's the deal. The promise of God. God has given these promises. And the same God who has made the promises is capable of keeping the promises. He always does. There is not a promise of God given to saints or servants across now 6,000 years. There's not a promise of God given to these people that he didn't see through. And those promises we are waiting for in the parousia, that is the return, the second coming of Jesus Christ, these will be fulfilled exactly as all the prior promises were fulfilled because God is faithful to do so. Again, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 1.20, as many as the, are the promises of God, they are maybe. Well, that's not what it says. They are yes. They are yes. They're not perhaps. Hey, I want to tell you, I'm going to guarantee, I'm going to catch you up out of this world, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 16 and 17. I'm going to do that, you know, I mean, if, if, if it works out. If I can pull it off, you know. The promises of God are yes. And our faith is not just out there in some vain, well, you know, perhaps in the sweet by and by we'll, we'll get there. No, our faith is in the promise of a God who is faithful, who when he makes a promise, he's gonna keep the promise. So if you find yourself in a place where you're fearful, where you're mistrustful of the world roundabout or your place in it, stop and recognize for a moment, even if just for a moment, it is not your personal experience that matters, it is the promise of God. Because he promises and he will see it through. By the way, the reason why this is tough and the reason why we relate to David who struggles with it as well is because it's counterintuitive to the soul. This is not how we think. It, it, it doesn't fit the paradigm of the soul, which is why we live in the spirit, which is why we acquiesce, if you will, to the spirit within us. Romans 4.21 again saying, being fully assured that what God has promised, he is able also to perform. Skip chapter, well, go to beginning of chapter 28 because the first two verses continue the story. It came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. Because, you know, he's been fighting against Israel, right? So Achish believes, clearly, he hates these people now. He's one of us. Come fight with us against them. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your, your servant can do. So Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Oy vey, part three, David's fix. David's fix. As in David is in a fix. He went out to Philistine country to protect himself and now he's on the Philistine military roll. Now he's gonna be called upon to fight with the enemy. By the way, as a side note, that'll happen. If you realign yourself away from the people of God and into the camp of the enemy, ultimately you will find yourself fighting for the enemy. And we see this happening in the church today. 
There are entire denominations, entire movements of so-called Christians. I know that sounds judgmental. I'm just judging by what the scriptures teach. There are so-called Christians out there who have fully aligned themselves with the enemy and are fighting against God's people. And so David is in this place. I mean, what a fix. Achish says, come on, we're fighting Israel. Come, you're gonna be my bodyguard. You're gonna fight with us. David's still playing it very cool. Now, I can just see his mind spinning. Okay, now, how do I get out of this one? Here's the problem of duplicity. You have to keep being duplicitous. You gotta keep lying to keep the lie alive. And after a while, you start to forget what you lied about. You're over here lying about, but did I, wait, what did I say before? Well, now he's here with Achish, and note what David says. He's keeping it close to the vest. He says, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. <laughs> that doesn't tell us anything about what he's going to do. He doesn't say, very well, I'm gonna fight with you, and we're gonna take out Israel. He says, you're gonna learn what your servant can do. Which may suggest that David has another plan in mind, but we can't know. We don't know what his intentions are. We have no idea right now because he's kind of a blank slate before us. What we can say is that fear and mistrust are very common, very soulish human traits. And so this eventual shepherd king, this David, sweet psalmist of Israel, as he will be called at the end of his life, is a sympathetic character to you and me. Sympathetic to those times when we get ourselves in a bind because we're trying to play both sides. Well, what's interesting here is after verse two of chapter 28, suddenly it shifts gears and goes to a story that actually happens even at a different time than this, dealing with Saul. And again, I'll tell you on Sunday why I think the writer is doing this, giving us this back and forth from David then to Saul, leaves us hanging, and all of a sudden, we don't know what's, so, well, what I mean, it goes to Saul, and now where's David and what's happening to that story? Chapter 29. So we go over to chapter 29, verse one, and we pick it up there for a little resolution because I just don't want to leave you hanging tonight. I hate to do that. Actually, it's not true, but <laughs> chapter 29, verse one, now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to effect while the Israelites were camping by the spring, which is in Jezreel. Those of you who have been to Israel know the, you know, the landscape. This is the spring of Herod. This is Ein Herod, or what we call Gideon's spring. So this is the same place where Gideon and his 300 met and, and took on the enemy, but the lords of the Philistines are now proceeding on by hundreds and thousands, and David and his men were proceeding on in the rear with Achish. Achish is the king of Gath. Remember, there are five Philistine city-states. Gath is one of them. We look at them when we see cities, but these were like Philistine nations that were all aligned. This would be kind of like the little, the Philistine Union. You know, the United States of Philistia. That's what these five, and each one had their own king, and Achish is the king of the Philistine city-state of Gath. So they're all now gathering together to go to war, and David is with the Gathites, or with the, the Philistines of Gath, and he's in the rear of the company as a bodyguard to Achish, this king. So you have that in mind. This is where we're headed. David is marching in the company of the enemy. Now, I'll say this one more time. The text gives us absolutely no clue as to what is on David's mind. Now, I think, just reading it through and knowing what we know of David so far, I think he's biding his time trying to figure out exactly how to either get away or how to turn and attack. He's out of time now, 16 months in Ziklag. I mean, it's been a nice day, but, but all good things must pass, right? So now, here we are. This is a difficult position but we just don't know his plan, so it's gotta play out, verse three. Then the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? The commanders may be just military commanders, or this may also be referring to the other lords of the other four Philistine city-states. But they see Achish of Gath coming, and here comes David. What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, was well, this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or rather these years? And I have found no fault in him from the day he desert, er, deserted to me to this day. That's a good guy. 
This is amazing. Achish the Philistine is in defense of David. Verse four, but the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, make the man go back that he may return to his place where you've assigned him and do not let him go down to battle with us or in the battle he may become an adversary to us. For with what could this man make himself acceptable to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men? I mean, how could he make it right with Saul? He could show up with a bunch of Philistine heads. That's how he could do it. Is this not David of whom they sing in the dances saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? This is hilarious. Even in Philistine country, this is a hit song. They are all aware of it. They all know about the history of David's ability to fight. And then Achish called David and said to him, as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and your going out and your coming in with me and the army are pleasing in my sight, for I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, you're not pleasing in the sight of the Lord's. You've been upright, David. <laughs> really? He's got you so fooled, Achish. David has not been upright. His loyalty this entire time has been a big fat facade. I like that David's the one kind of being tricky. I love this in a movie. Don't you, you know, when your favorite character is pulling something off? When you know and the main character know what's going on but the bad guys don't, I love that. But it's not godly. And there's a problem here with this whole idea of, of deceitfulness. Hey, it's deceitfulness against the enemy, right? It's still deceitfulness. And if you think back, this has become a pattern for David. I love David, I've told you that. One of my favorite of all the biblical uh, personalities but he's got an integrity problem. He's finding it easier and easier. He's getting used to playing the angles. In chapter 20, verse six, remember he had Jonathan deceive Saul, saying, just tell Saul I'm, I'm going home, I'm going to Bethlehem for this, this, just tell him that. And then in chapter 21, verse two, he misled Ahimelech and the priests of Nobay. Didn't tell them the truth, did he? In chapter 27, we see him deceiving Achish for months, and here in chapter 29, who knows what he's up to? Achish believes he is a faithful friend, but he's duping him. Is he duping him in this battle? Is he going to turn and fight on him? I mean, again, if this guy represents the enemy, fight deceit with deceit, wrong. Wrong, because the weapons of our warfare are not of this world. They are not of the flesh. They are different. We don't fight that way. We don't return fire for fire. We don't return lie for lie. We don't return brutality for brutality. That is not the way of Jesus. What does Jesus do to return the anger and the hatred of the mob and the Jewish leaders and the Romans? He stretches out his arms and he dies. That is the way of the cross. It is not the way of fighting back. God is a God of all truth. He is not a God of lies and deceit. You never hear Jesus lie, ever. He doesn't have to, he's Jesus. By the way, in Jesus, neither do we. We don't have to choose deceit. One of the biggest problems, and it's David's problem with deceit here, you get used to it. It's kind of easy. Hey, it worked before. I got around that one. I played that angle. What is it? Uh, Bing Crosby says in uh, White Christmas, don't you know that everyone has a little larceny going on in them? Don't you know we're all playing the angles, right? Yeah, everybody plays the angles a little, bit, a little bit. If it works for you in the moment, hey, that's fine. It becomes a convenient means to an end. And the problem is we see with David, he keeps reaching for this tool of convenience when it works for him, and he's going to reach for it again against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And he's gonna end up dead because of it. It's not until after David is outed by Natan the prophet 
for the murder of Uriah, for the adultery with Bathsheba, for the, the cover-up that he tries to, to come up with, it's after he is outed that he finally realizes something about this lifetime of lacking integrity. He writes in Psalm 51, verse six, behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. You almost get the sense when David writes that that he finally gets the aha. You desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you'll make me know wisdom. In Psalm 51, verse 10, he goes on to say, creating me a clean heart. Oh God, why? Because of Bathsheba? Yes, and I would suggest the lack of integrity of his entire life before that. This is a man with a dirty heart. A man after God's own heart, but David's own heart is somewhat soiled, and he says, create in me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. In Psalm 101, verse seven, David writes, he who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. David will learn. He will finally get it. But even at this point in his life, he's playing the angles when it works for him. Interesting that the Philistine commanders were the ones who didn't trust David, that they were the ones who had to pull Achish aside and go, dude, look at what you're doing. This is absolute foolishness, they say, verse four, they say, in battle he may become an adversary to us. Note this, the word adversary in Hebrew is Satan. Because that's where the lies come from. My question to you tonight, when we consider, you know, just the little lies, the little white lies, the little angles that get us by, who do you wanna look like? It takes Philistines to say right now, David is personifying Satan. The Bible says in Romans 8, 29, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he called. These whom he called, he justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. And by the way, there's a promise of God for you to be conformed to the image of Jesus being made more and more like him every day, ultimately to be glorified in resurrection, even as Jesus was glorified. So we will be resurrected like him. Don't get me wrong, we're not gonna be like Jesus in all ways. <laughs> There's only one Jesus, but we will follow after his pattern. Be Christ-like, not Satan-like. I mean, that seems like kind of a no-brainer, doesn't it? Well, verse seven. Now then return and go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines, Achish says. So David says to Achish, but what have I done? <laughs> and what have you found in your servant from the day when I came before you to this day that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Now, either David is just being an idiot or he's so sly, he's trying to act like he's hurt that he's not gonna be able to go into this battle while in the back of his mind he's going, yes, <laughs> paid off again. But Achish replied to David, he says, I know that you are pleasing in my sight like an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines, they've said he must not go up with us in battle. Now then, arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who have come with you, and as soon as you have arisen early in the morning and have light, depart. So David arose early, he and his men to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines and the Philistines went up to Jezreel, part four. David's freedom. David's freedom. There's one reason that David got out of this fix that he got himself into. One reason alone, in spite of his fear, in spite of his duplicity, in spite of his character flaws, one reason, 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. While not mentioned, although he is named by Akish in chapter 29, but while not mentioned anywhere else, I think it's safe to assume that the Lord quietly secured David's freedom. God got him out of this mess. Because of David? For David's sake? Is he okay with David's behavior and all this? No, no. 
but he says, for the sake of my name, I delay my wrath, Isaiah 48, verse nine, and for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I will act, for how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? I am so glad to hear that. I am so thankful that God is not acting to save me because of me, because that's a dangerous place to be. <laughs> I'm looking inward, I don't see something that, that can save itself. And God is not saving me because, wow, Rick, you know, you taught through the Bible, good job. We got a place for that, right, you know? God saves every single one of us, not because of us, but for his own name's sake because he said he would. He says, trust me. Do not lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge me in all your ways. I'll make your path straight. And so we put our trust in him because he will save for his own name's sake. By the way, last thing, I just gotta point this out. I find it very interesting. Anytime we see these parallels, Achish whether he was deceived or not, and obviously there's some deceit going on, but in chapter 29, did you notice that Achish vindicates David three times? Three times he stands up in verse three, verse six, and verse nine to vindicate David, who's tricking him. And in verse three, he even uses this phrase, I have found no fault in him. Does that sound familiar? I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. And for a third time, I find no fault in him. Well, guess what? Another enemy declared no fault in the son of David exactly three times. John chapter 18, verse 38, Pilate went out again to the Jews and he said to them, I find no guilt in him. And on down in verse four of John chapter 19, Pilate came out again and said to them, behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe, Pilate said to them, behold the man. And so when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. Three times. Just like Achish with David, David is guilty, is deceitful, is lying. Achish doesn't see it. Pilate does see that this Jesus is faultless here. This Jesus is innocent of all charges. Why then, Pilate, why did you hand him over? Well, the Jews answered him saying, we have a law and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God, which is true. He made himself out to be the son of God because he is the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, listen, he was even more afraid. Fear of man. The fear of man is what caused Pilate to hand over Jesus, even though he found no guilt in him. It was fear, it was mistrust, and yet there was no fault in Jesus. Acts chapter 13, verse 32, Paul says, we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. How do we deal with fear and mistrust in this world? We face them with confidence in the promises of God. Amen? Amen? Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. Father, I, I, I pray that this word will settle in our hearts. Pray this so often, Lord, but that it would be seeded, that we would receive the word implanted, that it would find its way into the cracks and crevices of our spirit man, spirit woman, that we, Lord, we would receive this truth and that we would begin to trust your promises over our experience. That when we find ourselves acting out of fear, acting out of mistrust, that we wouldn't do as the world says and trust our hearts and turn inward, 
But Father, we would turn to you that we would lean not on our own understanding for all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. Help us to trust your promises not to give up. And though we may fall and though we may sin and though we may yet have much to learn, increase our trust, Lord Jesus, in your good promises. For we know you will fulfill every one. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.